welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hey, just dropping in to say we're now on Patreon. If you want to support the project, head on over to patreon.com slash legallistening, where you can unlock some fun bonus content with me, Zach, and some special guests. Thanks so much for all your support. So today on the podcast, we have the Queen and J.A., So right off the hop, I'm going to put a very big trigger warning that this case involves sexual assault, and it gets into pretty graphic detail about it, so it can be difficult to hear. So as always, please take care, and if this isn't the content for you, that is absolutely fine. We have lots of content that you can listen to. So this one is a Supreme Court decision from about 10 years ago, and it deals with the idea of consenting to sexual activity in advance if you are to be unconscious when the sexual activity takes place. So, Zach, do you remember this one? I do remember this one. And I remember this one for a lot of different reasons, some good, some bad. But I do remember taking this in 1L Crim Law. I remember um, in my criminal law class, we did talk a lot about um, sexual assault because in hindsight, I was like, that's right. At the time, I didn't realize why. I was like, what is going on? I don't understand why we need to learn this as like a base layer crim law thing. Three years of law school having been completed, almost a year of articling been completed. I look back on it now and go, oh, I understand why we learned this when we did, because consent, especially in the context of criminal law, is extremely important because it changes the entire factual matrices of a case. So putting that all aside, I remember learning this as a 1L and being like, I get it, but I hate it at the same time sometimes. So Yeah, I read, so I, th- I believe I actually wrote a paper about this, and I read all three levels of this decision. And I think in the end, I ended up liking the trial judge's decision the best. So essentially, the Supreme Court says that because ongoing conscious consent is required in the context of sexual assault in this country, that you cannot consent in advance to being unconscious while the sexual activity takes place. And this is in line with Chuck, which we are working on recording for the podcast, which held that, you know, advanced consent is not consent. So the majority holds that, you know, this is in line with that jurisprudence because you cannot consent in advance to something that's going to happen while you are unconscious. So that's essentially, honestly, what the trial judge says, sort of. The, the You know, the trial judge is obviously, because she heard all the testimony, much more focused on the facts sort of specific to this case. This idea of consent in advance to um, sexual activity that happens while you're unconscious, that's only something we really see at the levels of appeal. It's obviously, you know, it, it gets mentioned at trial, but it's certainly not the focus of the trial. And, you know, the reason this decision frustrated me, both as a student and, you know, now when I re-recorded it, is that a lot of the context of the actual people involved, both complainant and the defendant, get kind of lost, right? Like this is, and you know, uh, certainly that's that's the court's prerogative and job, right? Their job is to interpret the law, not sort of get weighed down in the facts because that's what the trial judge is doing. But I think this one specifically, um, it always serves as a good reminder to me to continuously remind myself that these are actual people and, you know, this is a very good example of something reaching the Supreme Court and the individualized people are almost lost entirely, subsumed yeah, by Yeah, that this is issue. one takeaway I learned, and I think it was criminal procedure, was that a lot of the cases that you read as a law student, um, because they tend to be a court of appeal, Supreme Court level decisions, a lot of the times the individuals and in the cases get lost 
and then we memorialize them through what I'm going to call shorthand for legal decisions, such as Gladu, Epili, Garofoli, um, Dawson. Like these are all criminal law examples, right? Of language that we use, you know, like there's a Garofoli application, a Gladu inquiry, a Dawson mm. app. Like we hear these things and we kind of lose, we lose who the cases are about. So it, it is good to remind ourselves you know, that at the end of all of this, there there are people, right? There are human beings whose lives are, you know, not... They're, they're, it, it's hard to express is what I'm trying to get at. I can't think of the right words in English yeah. to describe. No, it's not, you know, the, it's not an easy thing. And, you know, specifically with the dissenting opinion, you know, Justice Fish's dissent here, he very much disagrees with everything the majority has to say on this issue, which is his prerogative to do so. But I think he especially um, the the compl- the complainant and the accused get lost, I think, a lot in this decision. And that's certainly not a criticism of the court. It's the court's job to interpret these legal issues. That's what they're there for. But I think it sort of behooves us as practitioners to remember that there are actual people, both accused and complainant, behind these cases. Because I, I think this is a good example of something that you know, the original issues at trial become shadows uh, to what actually gets appealed up to the Supreme Court. And it's a sort of very narrow, important, obviously, within the context of consent, important issue, but extremely narrow issue compared to what sort of the broad scope of the trial and the various issues that were at play there. So any final thoughts on this one, Zach? No, I was going to say that's about it. Just remember, everyone, take care of yourself when you read these cases. Remember that there are uh, there are people at the end of the day that are involved in these cases. Yeah. That's all I got. All right. Well, enjoy, guys. The Queen and J.A. Supreme Court of Canada. Heard November 8th, 2010 and May 27th, 2011 on appeal from the Court of Appeal for Ontario. The judgment of Chief Justice McLaughlin and Justices Deschamps, Abella, Chiron, Rothstein, and Cromwell was delivered by the Chief Justice. It is a fundamental principle of Canadian law that a person is entitled to refuse sexual contact. From this, it follows that the sexual acts performed without consent and without any honest belief in consent constitute the crime of sexual assault. The issue raised by this appeal is whether a person can perform sexual acts on an unconscious person if the person consented to those acts in advance of being rendered unconscious. The Crown argues that consent in advance of being rendered unconscious does not change the fact that the person, while unconscious, does not have an operating mind and is therefore incapable of consenting to sexual acts performed on her while unconscious. It argues that this is what the criminal code requires and that to hold otherwise would be to condone non-consensual sex and sexual exploitation. The respondent, J.A., on the other hand, argues that he may engage in sexual activity with an unconscious person, provided he does not exceed the bounds of what the unconscious person expected. To hold otherwise, the respondent says, is to criminalize benign and essentially consensual sexual activity. Our task on this appeal is to determine whether the criminal code defines consent as requiring a conscious operating mind throughout the sexual activity. I conclude that the code makes it clear that an individual must be conscious throughout the sexual activity in order to provide the requisite consent. 
Parliament requires ongoing, conscious consent to ensure that women and men are not victims of sexual exploitation and to ensure that individuals engaging in sexual activity are capable of asking their partners to stop at any point. I would therefore allow the appeal and restore the conviction of the respondent. Part 1. Facts. On May 22, 2007, the respondent J.A. and his longtime partner K.D. spent an evening together at home. While watching a movie on the couch, they started to kiss and engage in foreplay. After some time, they went upstairs to their bedroom and became more intimate. They both undressed and started kissing on the bed. While Katie was lying on her back, J.A. placed his hands around her throat and choked her until she was unconscious. At trial, Katie estimated that she was unconscious for less than three minutes. She testified that she consented to J.A. choking her and understood that she might lose consciousness. She stated that she and J.A. had experimented with erotic asphyxiation and that she had lost consciousness before. When K.D. regained consciousness, she was on her knees at the edge of the bed with her hands tied behind her back, and J.A. was inserting a dildo into her anus. K.D. gave conflicting testimony about whether this was the first time J.A. had inserted a dildo into her anus. During her examination-in-chief, she stated that this was a first and initially maintained this answer during cross-examination by defense counsel. Mr. Goldstein, in terms of having what you referred to as a dildo inserted, you had said in your butt, is this something that had happened before? KD, no, we hadn't done that. We discussed the possibility of it. At the moment, I just went with it in the spirit of experimentation. However, when confronted with the transcript of her testimony at J.A.'s bail hearing, Katie changed her answer. KD, we had tried it one time prior. Mr. Goldstein, okay. KD, somewhat of a drunken evening a while ago. I do apologize. KD testified that J.A. removed the dildo 10 seconds after she regained consciousness. The two then had vaginal intercourse. When they had finished, J.A. cut KD's hands loose. KD made a complaint to the police on July 11th. In a videotaped statement, she told the police that she had not consented to the sexual activity that had occurred. She later recanted her allegation and claimed that she made a false complaint to the police because J.A. had threatened to seek sole custody of their two-year-old son. J.A. was charged with aggravated assault, sexual assault, attempting to render the complainant unconscious in order to sexually assault her and with the breaching of his probation order. Part 2. Judicial History Subpart A. Ontario Court of Justice K.D. was the only witness at trial in the Ontario Court of Justice. Justice Nicholas found J.A. not guilty of aggravated assault and assault causing bodily harm. She concluded that K.D. had consented to being choked into unconsciousness. The trial judge also held that K.D. did not suffer bodily harm since the unconsciousness that she experienced was only transient. Justice Nicholas found that the complainant consented to being choked. However, Justice Nicholas found J.A. guilty of sexual assault. She described K.D.'s conflicting testimony as typical of a recanting complainant in a domestic matter. She concluded that K.D. had not consented to the insertion of the dildo and that this was the first time that the couple had engaged in this sexual activity. In the alternative, the trial judge held that K.D. could not legally consent to sexual activity that takes place when she is unconscious. J.A. was also found guilty of breaching his probation order. 
Subpart B, Ontario Court of Appeal. J.A. successfully appealed his convictions to the Ontario Court of Appeal. The court unanimously held that there was insufficient evidence at trial to conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that K.D. did not consent to the insertion of the dildo in advance of unconsciousness. The court split on whether such consent would be legally valid. On behalf of the majority, Appeal Justice Simmons held that individuals could consent in advance to sexual activity that occurs while they are unconscious. She emphasized that the Crown must prove the absence of consent in order to establish the actus reus of sexual assault. She reasoned that if an individual consents in advance to sexual activity taking place while she is unconscious and never changes her mind, quote, the only state of mind ever experienced by the person is that of consent, end quote. The majority also rejected the Crown's argument that consent in this case was vitiated by the intentional infliction of bodily harm. Appeal Justice Simmons agreed with the Crown that the trial judge had committed an error in law in her analysis of bodily harm, but held that bodily harm could not be relied upon to vitiate consent in the case of sexual assault simpliciter. Appeal Justice LaForme dissented holding that the definition of consent for the purposes of sexual assault required the individual to have an active mind throughout the sexual activity. He based his conclusion on this court's decision in the Queen in Uinchuk, stating that this decision, quote, conclusively establishes that a prior consent is not effective as a matter of law because unconsciousness deprives the person consenting of the ability to express consent or know whether they are consenting at the time the sexual activity occurs, end quote. Appeal Justice LaForme also held that the criminal code defined consent as an ongoing state of mind, and that consent ceases as soon as the complainant falls unconscious and is incapable of consenting. He noted that the criminal code allowed individuals to revoke their consent at any time during the sexual activity. Appeal Justice LaForme did not discuss whether bodily harm could vitiate consent in the case of sexual assault simpliciter. However, he did state that he only disagreed with Appeal Justice Simmons's discussion of unconscious consent. Part 3. Analysis Subpart A. Issue on Appeal The only question before this court is whether consent for the purposes of sexual assault requires the complainant to be conscious throughout the sexual activity. This is because the Crown appeals to this court as of right on the basis of any question of law which a judge of the Court of Appeal dissents. Accordingly, whether the complainant consented in fact or suffered bodily harm are not at issue, nor is the Court of Appeals holding that, for reasons of procedural fairness, the Crown in this case cannot rely on bodily harm to vitiate consent, since it did not formally allege that bodily harm occurred. Since the issue of bodily harm is not before this court, I take no position on whether or in which circumstances individuals may consent to bodily harm during sexual activity. In my view, it would be inappropriate to decide the matter without the benefit of submissions from interested groups. Subpart B. Framework of Sexual Assault Before turning to the issue in this case, it is useful to consider the framework of the law of sexual assault. A conviction for sexual assault under Section 271 sub 1 of the Criminal Code requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt of the actus reus and the mens rea of the offense. A person commits the actus reus if he touches another person in a sexual way without her consent. 
Consent for this purpose is actual subjective consent in the mind of the complainant at the time of the sexual activity in question. As discussed below, the Criminal Code, Section 273.1 sub 2, limits this definition by stipulating circumstances where consent is not obtained. A person has the required mental state or mens rea of the offense when he or she knew that the complainant was not consenting to the sexual act in question or was reckless or willfully blind to the absence of consent. The accused may raise the defense of honest but mistaken belief in consent if he believed that the complainant communicated consent to engage in the sexual activity. However, as discussed below, sections 273.1 sub 2 and 273.2 limit the cases in which the accused may rely on this defense. For instance, the accused cannot argue that he misinterpreted the complainant saying no as meaning yes. The issue in this case is whether the complainant consented, which is relevant to the actus reus, the Crown must prove the absence of consent to fulfill the requirements of the wrongful act. However, the provisions of the Criminal Code with respect to the mens rea defense of honest but mistaken belief also shed light on the issue of whether consent requires the complainant to have been conscious throughout the duration of the sexual activity. The relevant provisions of the Criminal Code are Sections 265, 273.1, and 273.2. The Criminal Code defines sexual assault as an assault that is committed in circumstances of a sexual nature. Section 265 provides that 265 sub 1. A person commits an assault when sub a. Without the consent of another person, he applies force intentionally to that other person, directly or indirectly. Sub b. He attempts or threatens, by an act or a gesture, to apply force to another person, if he has or causes that the other person to believe on reasonable grounds that he has present ability to affect his purpose, or sub c, when openly wearing or carrying a weapon or an imitation thereof, he accosts or impedes another person or begs. Sub 2. This section applies to all forms of assault, including sexual assault, sexual assault with a weapon, threats to a third party, or causing bodily harm and aggravated sexual assault. Parliament has enacted provisions that specifically define consent for the purpose of sexual assault. In particular, Section 273.1 establishes as follows. 273.1, Sub 1. Subject to Subsection 2 and Subsection 265, Sub 3, consent means for the purposes of Sections 271, 272, and 273, the voluntary agreement of the complainant to engage in the sexual activity in question. Sub 2. No consent is obtained for the purposes of section 271, 272, and 273, where Sub A. The agreement is expressed by the words or conduct of a person other than the complainant. Sub B. The complainant is incapable of consenting to the activity. Sub C, the accused induces the complainant to engage in the activity by abusing a position of trust, power, or authority. Sub D, the complainant expresses, by words or conduct, a lack of agreement to engage in the activity. Or Sub E, the complainant, having consented to engage in sexual activity, expresses, by words or conduct, a lack of agreement to continue to engage in the activity. Sub 3, 
Nothing in subsection 2 shall be construed as limiting the circumstances in which no consent is obtained. The definition of consent for the purpose of sexual assault is found in section 273.1 sub 1. In order to clarify this broad definition, Parliament provides a non-exhaustive list of circumstances in which no consent is obtained in section 273.1 sub 2. Section 273.1 sub 3 authorizes the courts to identify additional cases in which no consent is obtained in a manner consistent with the policies underlying the provisions of the criminal code. The defense of honest but mistaken belief in consent was recognized and limited by Parliament in Section 273.2 of the Criminal Code. 273.2 It is not a defense to a charge under Section 271, 272, or 273 that the accused believed that the complainant consented to the activity that forms the subject matter of the charge, where, sub a, the accused's belief arose from the accused's 1. self-induced intoxication, or 2. reckless or willful blindness, or sub b, the accused did not take reasonable steps in the circumstances known to the accused at the time to ascertain that the complainant was consenting. Subpart c, the concept of consent under the Criminal Code. The foregoing provisions of the Criminal Code indicate that Parliament viewed consent as the conscious agreement of the complainant to engage in every sexual act in a particular encounter. The proper approach to statutory interpretation was summarized in Canada Trust Co. Mortgage Company in Canada. Quote, the interpretation of a statutory provision must be made according to a textual, contextual, and purposive analysis to find a meaning that is harmonious with the act as a whole, end quote. The court emphasized that while, quote, the relative effects of ordinary meaning, context, and purpose on the interpretive process may vary, in all cases, the court must seek to read the provisions of the act as a harmonious whole, end quote. It follows that we must seek to interpret the provisions that deal with consent in a harmonious way. Applying this approach, we see that Parliament defined consent in a way that requires the complainant to be conscious throughout the sexual activity in question. The issue is not whether the court should identify a new exception that vitiates consent to sexual activity while unconscious, but whether an unconscious person can qualify as consenting under Parliament's definition. Consent for the purposes of sexual assault, as defined in Section 273.1 sub 1, as, quote, the voluntary agreement of the complainant to engage in the sexual activity in question, end quote. This suggests that the consent of the complainant must be specifically directed to each and every sexual act, negating the argument that broad advance consent is what Parliament had in mind. As discussed below, this court has also interpreted this provision as requiring the complainant to consent to the activity at the time it occurs. Section 273.1 sub 2 provides a non-exhaustive list of circumstances in which no consent is obtained. These examples shed further light on Parliament's understanding of consent. Section 273.1 sub 2 sub b provides that no consent is obtained if the complainant is incapable of consenting to the activity. Parliament was concerned that sexual acts might be perpetrated on persons who do not have the mental capacity to give meaningful consent. This might be because of mental impairment, 
it also might arise from unconsciousness. It follows that Parliament intended consent to mean the conscious consent of an operating mind. The provisions of the criminal code that relate to the mens rea of sexual assault confirm that individuals must be conscious throughout the sexual activity. Before considering these provisions, however, it is important to keep in mind the differences between the meaning of consent under the actus reus and under the mens rea. Under the mens rea defense, the issue is whether the accused believed that the complainant communicated consent. Conversely, the only question for the actus reus is whether the complainant was subjectively consenting in her mind. The complainant is not required to express her lack of consent or her revocation of consent for the actus reus to be established. With this caution in mind, I come to the three provisions that relate to the mens rea that are relevant to the issue in this case. Section 273.1 sub 2 sub d, section 273.1 sub 2 sub e, and section 273.2 sub b. Section 273.1 sub 2 sub d provides that there can be no consent if the complainant expresses, by word or conduct, a lack of agreement to engage in the activity. Since this provision refers to the expression of consent, it is clear that it can only apply to the accused's mens rea. The point here is the linking of lack of consent to any activity. This suggests a present, ongoing conception of consent, rather than advance consent to a suite of activities. Section 273.1 sub 2 sub e establishes that it is an error of law for the accused to believe that the complainant is still consenting after she expresses a lack of agreement to continue to engage in the activity. Since this provision refers to the expression of consent, it is clear it can only apply to the accused's mens rea. Nonetheless, it indicates that Parliament wanted people to be capable of revoking their consent at any time during the sexual activity. This in turn supports the view that Parliament viewed consent as the product of a conscious mind, since a person who has been rendered unconscious cannot revoke her consent. As a result, the protection afforded by Section 273.1 sub 2 sub e would not be available to her. According to my colleague Justice Fish, Section 273.1 sub 2 sub e suggests that the complainant's consent can be given in advance and remains operative unless and until it is subsequently revoked. With respect, I cannot accept this interpretation. The provision in question establishes that the accused must halt all sexual contact once the complainant expresses that she no longer consents. This does not mean that a failure to tell the accused to stop means that the complainant must have been consenting. As this court has repeatedly held, the complainant is not required to express her lack of consent for the actus reus to be established. Rather, the question is whether the complainant subjectively consented in her mind. Section 273.2 sheds further light on Parliament's conception of consent. Section 273.2 sub b states that a person wishing to avail himself of the mens rea defense must not only believe that the complainant communicated her consent, but must also have taken reasonable steps to ascertain whether she was consenting to engage in the sexual activity in question at the time it occurred. 
How can one take reasonable steps to ascertain whether a person is consenting to sexual activity while it is occurring if that person is unconscious? Once again, the provision is grounded in the assumption that the complainant must consciously consent to each and every sexual act. Further, by requiring the accused to take reasonable steps to ensure that the complainant was consenting, Parliament has indicated that the consent of the complainant must be an ongoing state of mind. The question in this case is whether Parliament defined consent in a way that extends to advance consent to sexual acts committed while the complainant is unconscious. In my view, it did not. J.A.'s contention that advanced consent can be given to sexual acts taking place during unconsciousness is not in harmony with the provisions of the Code and their underlying policies. These provisions indicate that Parliament viewed consent as requiring a capable or operating mind able to evaluate each and every sexual act committed. To hold otherwise runs counter to Parliament's clear intent that a person has the right to consent to particular acts and to revoke her consent at any time. Reading these provisions together, I cannot accept the respondent's contention that an individual may consent in advance to sexual activity taking place while she is unconscious. Subpart D, the concept of consent in the jurisprudence. The jurisprudence has consistently interpreted consent as requiring a conscious, operating mind capable of granting, revoking, or withholding consent to each and every sexual act. While the issue of whether advanced consent can suffice to justify future sexual acts has not come before this court prior to this case, the tenor of the jurisprudence undermines this concept of consent. As held by Justice Major in Ewenchuk, quote, the absence of consent is subjective and determined by reference to the complainant's subjective internal state of mind towards the touching at the time it occurred, end quote. The trier of fact must determine what was going on in the mind of the complainant in response to the touching. The majority repeatedly underlined that the focus is on the complainant's state of mind, referring to the consent of the complainant as the mental state. Moreover, as noted above, the complainant is not required to express her lack of consent. Rather, the absence of consent is established if the complainant was not experiencing the state of mind of consent while the sexual activity was occurring. The only relevant period of time for the complainant's consent is while the touching is occurring. The complainant's view towards the touching before or after are not directly relevant. An offense has not occurred if the complainant consents at the time but later changes her mind, absent grounds for vitiating consent. Conversely, the actus reus has been committed if the complainant was not consenting in her mind while the touching took place, even if she expressed her consent before or after the fact. The jurisprudence of this court also establishes that there is no substitute for the complainant's actual consent to the sexual activity at the time it occurred. It is not open to the defendant to argue that the complainant's consent was implied by the circumstances or by the relationship between the accused and the complainant. There is no defense of implied consent to sexual assault. The cases on the mens rea defense of honest but mistaken belief in consent take the same view. At common law, this was a standard defense of mistake of fact. The accused was not guilty if he honestly believed a state of facts, which if true, would have rendered the conduct unlawful. 
In Ewan Chuck, this court held that it is not sufficient for the accused to have believed that the complainant was subjectively consenting in her mind. Quote, in order to cloak the accused's actions in moral innocence, the evidence must show that he believed that the complainant communicated consent to engage in the sexual activity in question. End quote. It thus is not sufficient for the accused to have believed the complainant was consenting. He must also take reasonable steps to ascertain consent and must believe that the complainant communicated her consent to engage in the sexual activity in question. This is impossible if the complainant is unconscious. The respondent argues that my dissenting reasons in ESAO suggest that an individual may consent while unconscious for the purpose of the actus reus of the offense. The issue in that case was whether the defense of honest but mistaken belief was available where the complainant asserted that she was unconscious due to drunkenness at the time of the sexual activity. The majority of the court, per Justice Major, held that the evidence sufficed to raise a basis for the defense. My dissenting reasons argued that the defense did not arise because an unconscious complainant lacks the capacity to communicate a voluntary decision to consent. To put it another way, the necessary but not sufficient condition of consent, the capacity to communicate agreement, is absent. I further stated, quote, The hypothetical case of a complainant giving advanced consent to sexual contact before becoming unconscious does not constitute an exception. Consent can be revoked at any time. The person who assaults an unconscious woman cannot know whether, were she conscious, she would revoke the earlier consent. He therefore takes the risk that she may later claim she was assaulted without consent. End quote. Appeal Justice Simmons read this passage as supporting the view that an individual may consent while unconscious. However, the point of the passage is simply to cast doubt on whether the defense of honest but mistaken belief can arise with respect to an unconscious complainant, assuming, without deciding, that the actus reus could be made out. The passage thus does not support the view that advanced consent prior to unconsciousness can establish consent for the purposes of the actus reus of the offense. Subpart E. The Arguments to the Contrary The issue in this case relates only to the actus reus of sexual assault. The question is whether advanced consent can establish consent to sexual activity committed on a person who has been rendered unconscious. The foregoing discussion of the provisions of the criminal code and the jurisprudence suggests that the answer to this question is no. However, before concluding on the matter, we must examine the arguments put against this conclusion. The first argument is that advanced consent equals actual consent because the complainant cannot change her mind after being rendered unconscious. Appeal Justice Simmons accepted this argument. Quote, where a person consents in advance to sexual activity expected to occur while unconscious and does not change their mind, I fail to see how the Crown can prove lack of consent. The only state of mind ever experienced by the person is that of consent. End quote. This argument runs contrary, however, to this Court's conclusion in Ewanchuk that the only relevant period for ascertaining whether the complainant consented under the criminal code is while the touching is occurring. When the complainant loses consciousness, she loses the ability to either oppose or consent to the sexual activity that occurs. Finding that such a person is consenting would effectively negate the right of the complainant to change her mind at any point during the sexual encounter. 
The second argument is that the law should carve out an exception to the general requirement of conscious ongoing consent to sexual contact because this is required to deal with the special concerns unconsciousness raises. J.A. submits that this is what the law has done in the medical field, where the common law recognizes that doctors may perform surgery on unconscious patients. This argument fails to appreciate, however, that consent functions differently in different concepts. A number of considerations make consent to sexual activity different from consent in other contexts such as medical interventions and property transactions. Parliament has indicated that the notion of consent for sexual assault is distinct from consent in other contexts. It has also enacted special protections for medical practitioners, exempting them from criminal responsibility for performing a surgical operation on any person for the benefit of that person. Consequently, the fact that individuals may consent in advance to surgery does not determine if they may consent in advance to sexual activity. The body of pragmatic, context-specific rules of consent to govern medical operations developed by Parliament and at common law does not permit this court to overrule the requirements in the criminal code for consent to sexual acts. Moreover, the two situations are different. The pragmatic considerations that inform the definition of consent in the context of surgical operations differ from those that arise in the case of sexual activity. Surgical interventions are usually carefully planned, and appropriate consent is assured by consent forms and waivers, all to the end of limiting the risk of abuse. Such safeguards are rare, if perhaps non-existent, in the sexual arena. Along the same lines, the respondent and appeal Justice Simmons cite the example of two friends who agree before going to a party to assist each other in getting home if either should pass out from drinking too much. In such a case, the argument goes, the individual who assists her friend should be commended rather than charged with assault and kidnapping because the friend was not capable of consenting while unconscious. Again, the analogy is not exact. In the case of non-sexual assaults, consent may, where appropriate, be implied at common law. This court, applying the common law, has recognized cases in which the social setting and the relationship between the parties implies consent to non-sexual touching, such as shaking hands at a business meeting or colliding with a hockey player on the ice. Conversely, in interpreting the provisions of the criminal code that relate to sexual assault, this court has expressly rejected the notion of implied consent. The respondent also argues that requiring conscious consent to sexual activity may result in absurd outcomes. He cites the example of a person who kisses his sleeping partner. In that situation, he argues, the accused would be guilty of sexual assault unless he is permitted to argue that his sleeping partner consented to the kiss in advance. The first difficulty with altering the definition of consent to deal with the respondent's hypothesis is that it would only provide a defense where the complainant specifically turns her mind to consenting to the particular sexual acts that later occurred before falling asleep. The respondent's position is that there is no sexual assault in this case because the complainant consented to both being rendered unconscious and to engaging in the sexual activity that occurred while she was unconscious. If a hypothetical complainant did not expect her partner to kiss her, or whatever other acts are at issue, while she was asleep, the respondent's approach would not provide a defense. 
The second difficulty is the risk that the unconscious person's wishes would be innocently misinterpreted by his or her partner. Sexual preferences may be very particular and difficult for individuals to precisely express. If the accused fails to perform the sexual acts precisely as the complainant would have wanted, by neglecting to wear a condom, for instance, the unconscious party will be unintentionally violated. In addition to the risk of innocent misinterpretation, the respondent's position does not recognize the total vulnerability of the unconscious partner and the need to protect this person from exploitation. The unconscious partner cannot meaningfully control how her person is being touched, leaving her open to abuse. The third difficulty is evidentiary. If the complainant is unconscious during the sexual activity, she has no real way of knowing what happened and whether her partner exceeded the bounds of her consent. Only one person really knows what happened during the period of unconsciousness, leaving the unconscious party open for exploitation. The complainant may never discover that she was in fact the victim of sexual assault. Justice Fish correctly points out that in some cases, there may be forensic evidence that establishes conclusively that the accused exceeded the bounds of the consent given. However, if the complainant never suspects that a sexual assault has occurred, no forensic evidence will be gathered. Moreover, many acts of sexual assault leave no forensic evidence. A fourth difficulty is jurisprudential. Recognizing exceptions to the requirement of conscious consent would not only run counter to the definition of consent in the criminal code, but would impose on the courts the task of determining how consent to unconscious sexual activity can be proven. The respondent suggests that the court could ask if the complainant consented before losing consciousness to the sexual acts that subsequently occurred, pre-unconscious authorization. This would require the court to determine what the unconscious party wanted just prior to going unconscious and then assess if this is what indeed occurred. This inquiry would be objective, contrary to the subjective inquiry required by the criminal code. The only other option, post-unconsciousness determination of consent where the complainant decides when she regains consciousness if she would have consented to all the acts that occurred, is also problematic. A post-facto determination runs contrary to the rule that the complainant's post-act sentiments are irrelevant. If a complainant consents to sexual activity while it is taking place, but later decides that she should not have, the accused should be acquitted on the actus reus of the offense. The Crown suggested that this court could allow for mild sexual touching that occurs while a person is unconscious by relying on the de minimis doctrine, based on the Latin phrase de minimis non curat lex, or the law does not care for small or trifling matters. Without suggesting that the de minimis principle has no place in the law of sexual assault, it should be noted that even mild non-consensual touching of a sexual nature can have profound implications for the complainant. Running through the arguments in favor of carving out particular circumstances as exceptions to the conscious consent paradigm of the criminal code is the suggestion that the strict approach Parliament has adopted towards consent in the context of sexual assault has no place in relationships of mutual trust, like marriage. However, accepting this view would run counter to Parliament's clear rejection of defenses to sexual assault based on the nature of the relationship. The Criminal Code does not establish a different inquiry into consent depending on the relationship between the accused and the complainant. 
Their relationship may be evidence for both the actus reus and the mens rea, but it does not change the nature of the inquiry into whether the complainant consented as conceived by the criminal code. In the end, we are left with this. Parliament has defined sexual assault as sexual touching without consent. It has dealt with consent in a way that makes it clear that ongoing, conscious and present consent to the sexual activity in question is required. This concept of consent produces just results in the vast majority of cases. It has proved of great value in combating the stereotypes that historically have surrounded consent to sexual relations and undermined the law's ability to address the crime of sexual assault. In some situations, the concept of consent Parliament has adopted may seem unrealistic. However, it is inappropriate for this court to carve out exceptions when they undermine Parliament's choice. In the absence of a constitutional challenge, the appropriate body to alter the law on consent in relation to sexual assault is Parliament, should it deem this necessary. Subpart 4. Summary. The definition of consent for sexual assault requires the complainant to provide actual, active consent throughout every phase of the sexual activity. It is not possible for an unconscious person to satisfy this requirement, even if she expresses her consent in advance. Any sexual activity with an individual who is incapable of consciously evaluating whether she is consenting is therefore not consensual within the meaning of the criminal code. Part 5. Disposition. I would allow the appeal and restore the respondent's conviction for sexual assault. Thanks for the listen, friend. I hope you're able to enjoy that case and learn something new from it. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademeyer. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademeyer. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music done by Matt Rademeyer at radandkel.com. At Legal Listening, we're always open to new ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out on Twitter at Legal Listening or online at legallistening.com. Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We'll catch you in the next case. Bye now.